Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, October 25th, 2021. Today, we continue with part four of our six-part mini-series on twins. As a reminder, part one was an introduction to twins with Jen Lam Raplin. Parts two and three were a discussion about prenatal care of twins with Andre Rebarber, including routine care of twins in the first of those two, as well as the two most common complications in twin pregnancies, preterm birth and fetal growth restriction in the second of those two. Today, we're going to go into a topic that is unique to twin pregnancies with a single placenta, or what we call monochorionic twin pregnancies. The complication is called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, or TTTS for short. That's three T's and an S. I'm joined today by Dr. Nala Kalik from the Children's Hospital Philadelphia, or CHOP, which is one of the world leaders in the management of TTTS, and Nala is my go-to person when I myself have a patient with this condition. Today, Nala and I are going to discuss exactly what is TTTS and how we diagnose it. Next week, we're going to discuss the management of TTTS, which is pretty wild, as it involves lasers. Yes, lasers. Reminder, if you are new to the podcast, welcome aboard. Or if you've been listening for a while, but never reviewed us, we would love it if you could go on Apple Podcast and rate us. It takes really just two seconds once you're there. If you actually have the time to do more, please feel free to jot down a few comments in the review. We would really appreciate those. I read all of them. Also, reminder, we have a second podcast, High Risk Birth Stories, that drops every Thursday. So be sure to check that out as well. All right. Enjoy part four of the twin miniseries. See you Thursday for high risk birth stories. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Nala. Thanks for joining the podcast all the way from the great state of Pennsylvania. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to talk with you. It is a pleasure, obviously. And we work together professionally on some complicated cases. And based on your position at CHOP, which we'll talk about, you really get to see some pretty cool stuff. But I think we're just going to be talking today about sort of bread and butter twin twin transfusion syndrome, which is quite complex. but we're going to really try to, I don't know, break it down for patients and for women so they just understand what's going on and what we're thinking about, because this is something that needs to be talked about for women with um, identical twin pregnancies, monochorionic twins. Agreed, 100%. And, and I hope that, you know, after folks listen to this, they'll walk away with some key points and advocate for themselves as patients, and then maybe sometimes even educate their doc. Let's just start with you a little bit, just so our listeners get to know who you are. Obviously, I obviously know who you are, but tell us, where are you from? How'd you get into medicine and OB and what you're doing currently? I am originally uh, Egyptian descent, so first generation here. My parents emigrated to the U.S. when I was about four, and uh, I'm the eldest of three. I'm the only physician in my family, so it's a really interesting position as my parents get older. 
older and my siblings get older, they have a lot of non-OBGYN related questions that I'm supposed to know the answer to. <laughs> you're, the, you're, the, you're the chief medical officer in your family? Yeah, basically yeah. for I, the, I, for the yeah. Kalik household. <laughs> I, know, I know that position well. But I grew up in New York City, which is always going to be home, even though I've been living in Philadelphia now going on 11 years. You know, New York is where my heart is always. And my parents are still living there. And so that kind of ties me to home as well. Grew up in Brooklyn uh, and Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Went to Stuyvesant High School for those of the people in New York who know Stuy. And then ended up enrolling in a combined BSMD program at the City College of New York, which is now the City University of New York Medical School. Right. Transitioned to New York Medical College, did most of my rotations actually on the Upper East Side at Metropolitan Hospital, not too far from Sinai. Cool. Ultimately matched to OBGYN residency in Michigan. So then I spent a good portion of my formative professional years in Michigan and Detroit where I did my OBGYN residency and then ended up doing uh, one of one of the OGs in terms of combined fellowships in uh, maternal fetal <laughs> medicine and clinical genetics. I had to apply to both boards and create a specific curriculum. Now there's like 14 or 18 combined programs. So just to give you a sense of how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> right. And right. then um, went back to New York for a couple of years and was recruited to CHOP in uh, January of 2010, which is where I've been since. And at CHOP, which is Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, I work within the Department of Surgery. There's a, a specialized center for fetal diagnosis and treatment, which basically focuses on families who are affected by a prenatal diagnosis that either uh, encompasses a structural malformation, a genetic disorder, or as the topic of today, a complicated monochorine pregnancy. I also love medical education and public health. So during the course of my post-training career, I ended up getting my MPH from Mailman at Columbia and my master's in medical education at the Graduate School of Education here at the University of Pennsylvania. So I also wear a hat in the med school um, where I am course director for their humanism and professionalism curriculum during clerkship year. Spend a lot of time on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. I really believe that we need to invest in our young learners. Um, they're the ones that are going to end up taking care of us when we get older. Hopefully. But it also <laughs> just keeps me on my toes in terms of being sort of on the edge and keeping my finger on the pulse of what's happening in medicine. So, wow, that's a lot. Me in a nutshell. I'm also probably my most proud accomplishment is I have a two and a half year old daughter, Amina, who's just awesome. Beautiful. So that's, she's probably my favorite thing. <laughs> you are a, a busy bumblebee. How did you decide, let's say you're once you're in OBGYN, that you wanted to do a maternal fetal medicine, but also the clinical genetics at the same time? Because again, like you said, that, that was unusual at the time. It, it's still unusual, maybe not as unusual. Uh, but what led you to that, to that path? So when I entered my OBGYN residency, I actually had aspirations to be a GYN oncologist because mm. I really loved the idea of complex surgery, um, but also taking ownership of your patients. You know, the GYN oncologists really manage medical as well as surgical concerns for their patient. You know, I know the field has changed, but at the time, they were really the person who was in charge of the patient's care holistically. And I really like, I like the idea of not having to consult everyone for everything and being able to perform complex complex surgeries outside of just gynecology. What happened was that I did my oncology rotations and did electives and it was just a lot of death and dying that was very heavy. I will say that it really, really opened my eyes to the idea of palliative care, hospice care, but also just the strength and grace that people exhibit when they're under this particular type of duress. 
And and that's something that I, I carry with me to this day. But I felt like I was ineffective. I felt like I'm not making change for these women, even though I admired them and I respected them and I wanted so much for them. No matter how much I had all of that, I couldn't change things. And then I happened to be in an institution that was a powerhouse for maternal fetal medicine and particularly prenatal diagnosis and fetal therapy. And I had incredible mentorship. And when I really thought about it, you know, the complexities of performing invasive fetal therapies and sort of taking ownership of your patient were analogous to what I was thinking about in terms of GYN oncology. But I felt like I could be more effective and I felt like I could actually mitigate some of the conditions and, and create a more positive outcome. So my mind sort of transitioned to maternal fetal medicine. And then within that subspecialty, particularly fetal medicine, even though I really enjoyed the critical care component, I liked very complicated things, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. You know, really appreciated the fact that, you know, the maternal fetal dyad was incredibly unique in medicine where, you know, one person was totally dependent upon the other and you could sort of get insights into the health of one by looking at the other. And then also with the complex diagnoses, um, you know, there's a real role for the idea of palliative care. You know, medicine can only take us so far and we need to remain humble and always ask ourselves, you know, just because we can do something, is that the right thing? And understanding that there is a certain subset of pregnancies where moms were not going to be taking their babies home and how do we support them? So sort of transitioned into the fetal medicine aspect of things. And I I thought that clinical genetics was just a really nice way of marrying and understanding prenatal dysmorphology, particularly when it came to prenatal diagnosis. It also exposed me to a whole other field of medicine. Clinical geneticists are wicked, wicked, smart people. And I thrive in being surrounded by smart people. So that's kind of how I ended up in um, primarily application of fetal medicine. What brought you to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that we're, we're going to call CHOP because everybody on earth calls it CHOP, C-H-O-P, uh, not because you not because you CHOP placentas, which we're going to talk about, but because of, the, you know, <laughs> just an acronym. So what brought you there? I was recruited there by uh, my former chief resident, who's now the medical director and director of obstetric services here. So she knew that I had an interest in fetal medicine and she knew um, I was very, very close to my family, which is why I went back to New York originally. And she figured, you know, Philly's not that far from New York. Figure, why so don't I, I just pull I, you away from your family then? Okay. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, not too far, right? When I came here, I was just so impressed by truly how dedicated folks were towards just the thinking of like the entire family as a unit and not just looking at mother and fetus as patients, although that really factored into a lot of the decision-making processes, but really exemplify the idea of shared decision-making and also kind of practice medicine in a way that I always aspired to practice medicine in the sense that we spent as much time as needed with the families, identified whatever resources they required and were able to garner those resources to support the family, whether it be a place to stay, food to eat, or psychosocial or mental health support, and then really kind of be there at a time where traditionally, you know, everyone for the most part can take pregnancy for granted, right? In the sense that about 97, 98% of the time, everything is cool, baby is normal, you have your baby, you go home, it's wonderful, it's joyous. But then you have that two to 3% of pregnancies that are affected by some sort of structural difference or malformation. And it it really does shape your perspective. And it's, it's very formative in many ways for folks. It was such a privilege and it was so humbling and just so professionally gratifying as well as personally defining to be part of that process and experience with families. And and CHOP sort of had that ideal setting in order to really fulfill 
that kind of vision. Yeah, I mean, just for our, our listeners, you know, CHOP is, if it's not the premier fetal center in the U.S., it's of the premier fetal centers in the U.S., right? I mean, people may quibble about a handful of places who is, you know, who's one, who's two, who's three. But if you're not one, you're one of them. And uh, on the East Coast, that's where people go for the most complicated fetal or maternal fetal uh, situations there. And so your experience there is probably different from what most, certainly OBGYNs, but even maternal fetal medicine specialists are going to see and going to do on a typical day, week, or month. How has that been for you sort of, you know, being focused on the most complex of cases as opposed to sort of the, you know, run of the mill maternal field medicine type of things that we deal with all the time? It's very humbling. Like it's it's also like professionally very gratifying, right? So it, it's a way of collaborating with folks. Like one of the advantages of being here is that I can collaborate with, you know, radiologists and geneticists and all the pediatric subspecialists. So I can get the benefit of their experience from the neonatal perspective. But then marrying that with the prenatal perspective, you know, it, it opens their eyes to a lot of different things as well. And everyone here really strives to be at the top of their game. So we all inspire one another, and that's driven by the patients and, and sort of the complex challenges that they present uh, by virtue of their pregnancies. It's very, very humbling. It's very gratifying. It's very rewarding. It can also be very like heartbreaking. Like I, I don't even know if you can say like your heart breaks, but there's sometimes it aches, right? Because you can know all the things and do all the things and the highs are very high, but the lows are also very low. Like we, we truly carry every loss with us and, yeah. and we try to learn as much as possible and, and always, always, always with that humility of, you know, is what we're doing the right thing? Yeah. It's very exciting, right? It's very sexy to think about fetal surgery and operating while you're pregnant and but you always want to be mindful you know are we really doing the right thing and you know do we think short term medium term long term how do we think on all the terms and at the end of the day what we want is for you know every family to have as healthy of a child as they can possibly have i want to focus today's conversation and by saying that i'm right now forewarning you that there's going to be more conversations because i'm going to rope you in as much as possible but sure. today we're going to talk about <laughs> twin twin transfusion syndrome which we call ttts just because it's a mouthful to keep saying twin twin transfusion yeah. syndrome <laughs> and this is something that you know anyone who's doing OBGYN or maternal fetal medicine and sees twin pregnancies is going to deal with to some degree but then a lot of those patients, if it starts getting complex, are going to get sent your way for maybe more evaluation and potentially treatment. So what are we talking about here with, with TTTS? First, it's a, it's a diagnosis that uh, is unique to what we refer to as monochorionic twin pregnancies or monochorionic gestations. So that essentially means that you've got two fetuses that share uh, a placenta. Um, and, you know, in layman's terms, a lot of people refer to them as identical twins. What we're appreciating is that identical is not always so identical. But within the context of twin twin transition syndrome, essentially, you've got two fetuses that are sharing a placenta. And the idea behind twin twin transfusion syndrome is even though they're sharing a placenta, each fetus has their own share or portion of the placenta. And by virtue of being monochorionic, the best way to think about it is you've got uh, the umbilical cord that connects the baby to the placenta. And then once the umbilical cord enters that portion of the placenta that's been assigned to each baby or each fetus, 
it sort of divides into these multiple branches of arteries and veins. Think of it as like a tree trunk being the umbilical cord, and then all the arteries and veins are all those different branches of the tree. And it's those arteries and veins that perfuse or provide a blood supply to what we call cotyledons. So a placenta is really kind of like islands of cells, and each island has an artery and vein that um, support it. So the artery is what's bringing blood from the baby towards the placenta, and the vein is what's taking the blood from the placenta towards the baby. And when we think about arteries and veins, uh, it works kind of opposite in utero because babies are not breathing air. So the fetal circulation is very different from our adult circulation or postnatal circulation in that it's the vein that's bringing all the good stuff to the fetus, um, being oxygen, nutrition, et cetera. And then it's the arteries that are taking away all the waste products towards the placenta. So when you think about the placenta, the placenta is kind of like a heart-lung bypass dialysis machine. None of us would be here without our placentas. When you've got a monochorinic placenta, so you've got two fetuses, each one is in their own sac, and they each have their own umbilical cord. Umbilical cord goes into the share of the placenta that belongs to each fetus. What's really unique about these placentas is even though each fetus has its own territory, 100% uh, of the time, you'll have something called anastomoses, which are actually blood vessel communications. So remember how I said there's an artery and vein that goes to each cotyledon or each little island within the placental share. In monochorionic pregnancies, you can have an artery from one baby crossing over and communicating with the artery of the other baby. Or you can have a vein crossing over and communicating with the vein, or you have an artery crossing over and communicating with the vein. And when you think about the direction of blood flows, remember how I said the arteries are going from baby towards placenta and the veins are going from placenta towards baby, the direction of blood flow is really driven by pressure. So twin-twin transfusion syndrome is primarily the result of artery-to-vein communication. What ultimately happens is that you have a redistribution or a change in the direction of blood flow throughout the placenta. Depending on the artery-to-vein communication, there's no real magic number. But when you have, what I'll put in sort of air quotes, enough artery-to-vein communications, you then get a redistribution of blood flow where one baby is actually receiving a tremendous amount of blood volume and the other baby is shunting away from itself, so is not receiving a tremendous amount of blood volume. And it's basically an unequal distribution of blood flow. And that results in the phenomenon that we recognize by ultrasound as twin chin transfusion syndrome. And to break it down even further, it basically means that one baby is hypervolemic, has too much blood volume, and the other baby is hypovolemic, doesn't have enough blood volume. And so the only thing a baby wants to do in utero is just sort of hustle to survive, to get to birth. And so what's really phenomenal is that they start developing these mechanisms to try to adapt to this new distribution of blood volume. And uh, the terms that we use in twin-twin transfusion syndrome specifically are donor and recipient. And so the donor is the baby that is moving blood volume away from itself, not voluntarily, but just through these anastomoses. And as a result, decides to be super economic with whatever blood volume it has left. And so what it does is it shunts or it directs blood flow to the heart and to the brain. Everything else gets the leftovers. And so what you see on ultrasound is the less amniotic fluid in the sac for that baby. You see the bladder might not fill an empty or cycle, is what the term that we use. And sometimes you might even see a slowing down in the growth of that baby. The other thing that can happen is the recipient baby, so the baby that's now receiving all this extra volume, 
also has to create mechanisms in order to adapt. And so when we think about the heart, the heart's a pump, and it's got to be used effectively to pump all this extra flow that's going through the baby. And so the heart muscle can get thickened. And sometimes when you think about heart muscle, it's pretty efficient when you give it a lot of work to do. But when you give it too much work to do, it becomes so thick that it becomes inefficient. And those babies are at risk for heart failure. So both babies get sick over time, each in their own way, and it's all because they're trying to sort of accommodate to this new redistribution, primarily driven by these artery-to-vein communications that occur within the placenta. If you have someone who has two placentas, right, so a dichorionic twin pregnancy, just so our listeners understand, why would they not be a risk for twin-twin transfusion? Yeah, that's a great question. It's basically because you've got two separate individuals living in the same house, right? So a dichorionic twin pregnancy typically is you have two eggs, two sperm, two separate individuals. And so their circulations are never connected. They're two independent circulations. Right. And there there are instances where there are identical twins that have two placentas, but they would yes. not be at risk for twin twin. Meaning in our the way we look at it is, you know, obstetricians, maternal field medicine doctors is the risk of twin twin is not because they're identical. It's because they share one placenta. So if you have identical exactly. twins that don't share a placenta, Great. They're not at risk for twin twin. They have other issues, but they're not at risk for twin twin transfusion, which I think is important because people always ask, are they identical? They're not identical, and which is interesting for them. But for us, we're like two placentas or one placenta because that's the key. I think also it's really important, you know, this is where patients can sort of advocate for themselves is when you get that ultrasound as early in the pregnancy as possible and they tell you you have twins, you really want to insist that they figure out if they're monochorionic or dichorionic. That yeah. really helps shape how the rest of the pregnancy goes. Yeah. And if, if the person doing the ultrasound says, I can't tell, you want a second then opinion. Then you need to go to an MF. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If it's your obstetrician doing it, then you need to say, well, I need to go see maternal fetal medicine ASAP. Yeah, we had an earlier podcast on sort of twinning and the diagnosis and different kinds. And, and that was one of the things that came up. Uh, you know, we know this in our day-to-day work that it's so critical to know early on what kind of twins are we dealing with here. One placenta, two placentas, all these things, because it changes the risk. It changes how we monitor them. It changes how we interpret certain findings. You know, if there's two placentas and I see different growth in the babies, I know it has nothing to do with twin-twin. It's not going to turn into twin-twin. Totally not an option. But if there's one placenta, you know, there's certain signs that we see that might lead in that direction and it'll change the prognosis. It'll change the management. So that's pretty key. When you have a pregnancy where you know in advance the twin pregnancy and there's one placenta, two questions. What is the likelihood of twin-twin happening to that person? And the second is, is there anything that's in the control of the patient to increase or decrease, hopefully decrease, obviously, that risk? Yeah. So in general, if you pull all the literature, the incidence of twin-twin transfusion syndrome in monochronic pregnancies runs anywhere from 10 to 15 percent. So it's not insignificant. And as a result of that, you know, one of the sort of most proactive things a patient and her physician can do is once the diagnosis is made, you really need to start ultrasound surveillance beginning at 16 weeks. The general recommendation by Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and the American College of OBGYN and multiple Royal College of OBGYN in Canada, as well as um, European societies, is you start ultrasound surveillance at 16 weeks, then you do it every two weeks. Right. So you say that's when you diagnose uh, a monochorionic twin pregnancy. Yeah. Right. Not when you diagnose twin-twin transfusion, meaning before twin-twin, you start the monitoring. Correct. Yeah. Right. So the ideal is, you know, maybe get your ultrasound at 
eight weeks, 10 weeks, 11 weeks, 12 weeks, make sure to establish chorionicity at that point. And then once you've established chorionicity, meaning one placenta versus two placentas, if it's one placenta, you need to start doing ultrasound surveillance beginning at 16 weeks, not coming back at 18 weeks or 20 weeks for an anatomy survey. That'll change whether you diagnose it, but is there anything they can do to prevent it? Unfortunately, there's nothing that can be done to prevent it. Although the only reason I hesitate is because there is a way to prevent later stage disease, right. and that's with earlier ultrasound surveillance. But right. in terms of actually the the disease state itself, uh, there's nothing a mom can do. There's nothing a physician can do. You, you're either going to develop it or you're not. And the numbers basically break down to 10 to 15% chance of developing it. And we could flip that into an 85, 90% chance of not developing it. Yeah. And I think there's, there's some signs potentially earlier than 16 weeks, you know, that we can see an ultrasound that, you know, might indicate it's a higher chance of happening on the nuchal ultrasound we look at. And, yeah. you know, there's some signs, but ultimately it's, it's mostly a matter of, like you said, luck if someone's going to get it or not get it. And again, on the one hand, it's sort of a bummer that there's nothing that either we as doctors or women themselves can do to prevent it from happening. But on the plus side, and what we're going to talk about is the early screening, A, you'll know it's happening, but B, there's potential to intervene earlier and then therefore not develop some of the really bad consequences of twin-twin, right? Even if we can't prevent it from happening, we could potentially prevent the bad outcomes from happening if the diagnosis is made. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there's a lot of data that's being published about, you know, looking at the crown rump length and seeing if there's a discordance or, as you said, the nuchal lucency, sort of that fluid behind the neck. Unfortunately, nothing has really panned out that's a good predictive marker. And so ultrasound remains the mainstay. And at the end of the day, it's really making that diagnosis of chorionicity as early as possible. Just so our listeners understand, let's say this was completely ignored, meaning we didn't think about it, we didn't screen for it, and it was just left on its own to progress and someone had twin twin, what would happen to the babies? Like what are the outcomes we're worried about if it's completely undiagnosed and untreated? Yeah, I mean, it's really tragic because less than 10% will have what we call intact survival. So unfortunately, one of the sort of adaptive effects of TTTS is that the recipient fetus will also develop polyhydramnia. So as that fetus is pumping all that volume, it's also peeing more, right? It's minking more urine. And that, that creates an overdistension of the uterus, which can predispose to preterm delivery. And ultimately, that is the reason these pregnancies, if they are undiagnosed, can be so catastrophic because they can result in a very premature delivery with all the consequences of early prematurity. Right. The other consequence is you could have very severe twin-twin transfusion syndrome, which could result in the demise or the death of one twin or both twins. And so having it undiagnosed is pretty catastrophic. And fortunately, that is happening less and less. Yeah, I mean, left left its own devices. I mean, you could get, quote unquote, lucky and have a very mild case and the babies are okay. But the majority of the time, if it's undiagnosed and untreated, you're going to have either two babies that don't survive or one or two babies that survive and are extremely sick from prematurity or potentially heart failure. I mean, there's all these problems they can have. So it's, yeah, it's a really I mean, big the deal. The worst is neurologic devastation. I mean, there are worse things than death, unfortunately. Yeah. Having two neurologically devastated premature babies is, is not a good situation. Yeah. So, so it is very important. And you said we start the screening. What is it we're looking for on ultrasound at 16 weeks every week or two when we do these ultrasounds? If you go by what's recommended by Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, we're measuring the deepest vertical pocket or the largest vertical pocket or basically the biggest pocket of amniotic fluid in each sac. 
and we're looking for any discordance in that. So the typical general definition is polyhydramnios is when you've got more than eight centimeters that you're measuring in one sac, and oligohydramnios is when you have less than two centimeters, so more fluid or less fluid. The other thing you can identify at that age is whether or not the bladder is cycling, so filling and emptying. And typically over a 20-minute period, you can identify whether or not the bladder is cycling. So a lot of this will also depend on the length of time that the ultrasound examination is being performed. If you're doing a quick exam, you're not going to pick it up. But if you, if you spend at least 15, 20 minutes, and you can start at the beginning of the study looking at the bladder, and then at the end of the study, looking at the bladder, and you should be able to see that it cycles. Right. And just to, just to explain what that means, like, you know, in, in Twin Twin, the idea is one of them is getting sort of overloaded, you know, too much too much stuff getting pumped in. So they're going to be big and plump and ping all the time. And because of that, their bladder is filled and there's amniotic fluid all over the place. And the other one is the exact opposite, like really, really like shriveled up and small and they're dehydrated, so they're not peeing. And because of that, the bladder doesn't fill. It's like they were, you know, in a, in a desert and they haven't eaten or drink for, you know, a week. And so you see the discrepancy in, in the fluids. One has a ton of fluid. One has very little fluid. The neat nickname we have is polyoli. Or it might be a little bit subtle. Like yeah. you've got one pocket that's a little over eight centimeters, another pocket that's maybe three centimeters, not quite less than two. So the idea, again, behind the early ultrasound surveillance is to look for trends more than anything else. It's very unusual if you're screening appropriately with ultrasound that you'll have like a big, big change. Although there have been multiple cases that are referred to us where one week everything looks okay and the next week, boom, there's a huge difference in fluid. But ideally what you're looking for is trends. And remember about that donor baby, the donor baby is trying to be super economic. And so one of the costs is that, you know, the blood flow that it does have because it's per preferentially sending it to the heart and brain, the kidneys don't get as much. And so the kid doesn't pee as much. It's not that there's a missing bladder or anything like that, it's just right. that there isn't as much volume to distribute. So how often do you do these ultrasounds on a routine basis if there's been no issue? Everything's normal at 16 weeks. You do it every couple of weeks or every week? What do you typically yeah, do? Yeah, so the general recommendation is if everything looks great at 16 weeks and there are no subtle red flags, then you can see them again at 18 weeks. And then at 18 weeks, you can also add Doppler studies. So you can look at blood flow patterns in yeah. the umbilical artery. And you can also look at blood flow patterns and a very specific artery within the brain called the middle cerebral artery. So all of those, you know, ultrasound markers will kind of help decide sort of is this baby or is this pregnancy trending towards a certain direction. Right. And then these are done in all pregnancies where there's two babies sharing a placenta. Now, let's say there's a situation where someone might have twin-twin transfusion or they might be developing it. And this is the point where someone refers them to you. So you, you have someone coming in, she's 20 weeks with possible twin twin. You're going to do this. What else might you do in this sort of like secondary evaluation where it's not just a screen anymore, but it's really like for diagnosis and to really map things out? What other advanced things might you be doing? Yeah. I mean, so we do a detailed anatomic survey. You know, unfortunately, sometimes we've had patients referred to us. And part of the reason why there's a donor or no fluid is because there are no kidneys. Right. So we want to make sure that all the anatomy is there and that's normal. But one of the other features that we add is specifically fetal echocardiography. And so we look specifically at um, heart function for both of the babies. And part of that, again, ties into this whole idea of this being a hemodynamic issue or basically a blood flow issue. And so if you operate under the idea or the premise that twin-twin transfusion syndrome in many ways is a result of one baby having too much blood volume and the other baby not having enough blood volume, 
when you think about what moves that blood volume, it's the heart. And so looking specifically at heart function also helps inform us as to whether or not this is headed towards twin twin transition syndrome or a different diagnosis or can inform the severity of the twin twin transition syndrome and how it helps guide management. Yeah, I was going to ask you because there are different either called scoring or staging Mm -hmm. systems. I know that you guys have your own CHOP score. You have your own, you know, named score, which is, you know, congratulations. Good for you guys. It's awesome. (laughs) Uh, But there are many scores out there. I'm just curious, what is the the value of having any prognostic score or a stage telling someone yours is a little bit more mild or more moderate or more severe? And there's numbers and different ways to look at it. But just in general strokes, why would that be helpful potentially? So it's helpful, particularly in the early stages of twin twin transfusion syndrome, to determine whether or not offering uh, definitive fetal therapy is indicated. So just to give an example, when you have, uh, so twin twin transfusion syndrome is is broken down into stages, right? Stage one, two, three, four, five. As the number increases, the severity of the disease increases. What's considered early form twin twin transfusion syndrome is stage one and stage two. And particularly with stage one, there was previously a tremendous amount of debate as to whether or not we should offer fetal surgery. The reason being that for most cases of stage one, they tend to stay that way. And so there are risks with fetal surgery, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later on. And so the question is, is, you know, why take the risk? if we know that things aren't going to change and you'll still have a generally good outcome. That question was answered relatively recently by our colleagues in Europe, and we actually were one of the North American centers that participated, and there were two other centers that participated, where we randomized patients who were at stage one to sort of determine, okay, if we watch it versus if we start with therapy, sort of what happens. And ultimately, about 40% will progress. So when we think about the utility of echocardiography, that can sometimes identify the stage one patients who will progress. And when we talk about progression, we're talking about moving upstage, right? So stage two, three, or four. And so the idea is you'd like to intervene at a point where the babies are not so sick that they would ultimately, you know, gain the maximum benefit. So using the echocardiography and understanding sort of how the hearts are functioning um, it's very helpful, particularly in the early stages, because then sometimes we can offer surgery before the babies get too sick. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, one of the the complicating features of diagnosis is what are we going to do about it? Meaning it's not that hard to diagnose twin-twin transfusion if you know what you're looking for, right? Pretty much all of us can do it. But the the question about diagnosis is really not just do you have it, but A, what is the prognosis, meaning what do we think is going to happen? And that's highly related to what are we going to do about it? Meaning if treatment is an option, if it's not an option, and whether we think it's going to work or not work. And those are really intertwined together. So I'm sure when you're doing the evaluation, part of it is to figure out what's going on. And at the exact same time in your brain is, now that I'm figuring out what's going on, what are my options to treat and whether they're going to work or not? And that's how you counsel people, I imagine. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly how we think about it. So the again, it always goes down to the question about, well, if we do something, is that the right thing to do? And if we do something, what does that ultimately mean for the pregnancy and for the family? So it's it's exactly how we approach it. Excellent. So I think that's a really good summary of exactly what twin transfusion is, who's at risk for it, how do we screen for it, how is it diagnosed? And I think what we're going to do is we're going to move on to part two, we're going to talk about management, a treatment of twin-twin transfusion syndrome. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. 
To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.